Dose of Leadership podcast, episode 51. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. This is Richard Ryerson. Thanks for tuning in to another episode. This show is brought to you by my sponsor, Audible.com. If you're like me, you like to read, but you're having trouble finding the time to squeeze in all those great books, well, Audible.com is a perfect solution. Audiobooks are great. I never thought I would like them, but I love them now. It's a great way to get caught up. I listen to and get caught up on the book as I'm driving to work, if I'm exercising, any free time, working out in the yard, I can get caught up on all my reading. You can go to uh, my website, doseofleadership.com slash audible. And you can uh, download a free audiobook. Any audiobook they have, over 100,000 titles to choose from. You can download it for free, listen to it. You can sign up for 30 days with no obligation. If you don't like it after 30 days, you can cancel your subscription. But again, it's no risk to you. Go check out doseofleadership.com slash audible and make your smartphone smarter. Well, I'm so thrilled to have Howard Putnam on the show today. He's the former CEO of Southwest and Braniff Airlines and Group Vice President of Marketing for United Airlines. In 1978, he was recruited to become the president and CEO of the fledgling Southwest Airlines in Dallas, Texas. And while he was there, Howard and his team tripled the revenues and tripled profitability in just three years. He led the visioning process at Southwest as well as further developing the fun culture and the excellent customer service that Southwest is still known for today. In 1981, he was recruited by a board of directors of Braniff International to come aboard as CEO and save and restructure the financially failing airline. He was the first airline CEO to successfully take a major carrier into, through, and out of Chapter 11 when Brana flew again back in 1984. He's the author of a great book, The Winds of Turbulence, a great book on leadership and ethics, and I'm so thrilled to have him on the show. Howard, welcome to Dose of Leadership Podcast. You ready to give us a dose today? Hi, Richard. I'm, I'm ready to give you a dose. Well, let's go back to the beginning. I mean, you know, you got so much leadership experience, but where did it all start for you? How did you become passionate about leadership? Who were some of your early mentors? Uh, my dad was my first when I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in southwest Iowa on a farm near Bedford, Iowa, not too many miles from Wichita, Kansas. Yeah. And my dad, after World War II, got the urge to learn how to fly. Didn't have any money, but he sold enough cows and pigs to buy an old J3 Piper Cub for, I think, $600. And I remember when he bought it, brought it home after he had soloed, and landed in the pasture, and he's taxiing it up to the barn. And I'm thinking, just as I was a kid, you know, this is kind of ironic. We don't have any electricity. We don't have any indoor plumbing. We don't have any hot water. But we got an airplane <laughs> out here in the pasture. And that's where my passion for aviation and my passion for leadership started. Because I've had four careers, and I think, people stop and think about it, we all shared the same first career, and that's from the time you're born until the time you leave home, which in my case was age 17. And that's where my parents on that Iowa farm taught me leadership, responsibility, accountability, taking care of animals, how you help the neighbor whenever they needed it, which is what teamwork was about. And I just always enjoyed being accountable and as most people who grew up in rural areas will will say that when you came home from school 
school, there was always a list hanging up on the wall of here are the chores that you're supposed to accomplish before you can go play. And that routine, that discipline, uh, learning that integrity and ethics on the farm have served me so well uh, in my business career that a lot of it never changes. Yeah. Uh, you know, you read new books, but a lot of that stuff still there from the basics from that first career. Yeah, you know, it is so interesting that, you know, and I've talked to a lot of, well, you talk to, to, to almost every leader, and I was talking with the, the guy I worked with the other day about this, and invariably, everybody always goes back to either their parents and or a coach and or a teacher. Those are the three main leadership influences on almost everybody that I talk to. And of course, you know, and, and when you think about that and you think, wow, you know, and as a parent of four daughters, and you're right, we always look for the books and we look for the externals, we look for the, the kind of the larger in life figures. But those parents and, and being a parent has such a huge influence on somebody's leadership development. And it's sad today in our society <clears throat> that so many kids are growing up, uh, unfortunately, in a one-parent home. Yeah. And I admire the one parent that's doing it all, but there's just something you don't get without both dad and mom being there to, to uh, urge you on. You know, we didn't have any television when I grew up. Mm-hmm. So the, entertain, the entertainment in the evening was my oldest sister played the violin, my next sister played the piano, and I played the trombone. So we were the evening entertainment, and my folks would sit there and applaud. I'm sure we could listen to it today. It probably sounded awful. But what they always encouraged us. I don't remember them ever putting me down, saying, you can't do this. Right. And which is so, such an important ingredient as you lead others. You know, my dad, he grew up in a small town too, probably about that. He was a little bit older than you, but, um, he's the same thing, you know, early on, rarely, I think they had, he can't remember they didn't have electricity, but, um, no running water for a long time. I mean, well up to when he was almost in high school. And, um, he always used to talk about how the, in the evening entertainment and how something was lost and, you know, about playing cards and like, you know, the neighbors and then they grew up again, he grew up in a rural area. But how everybody got together and played cards and how that's kind of a lost art, you know, or a lost uh, uh, communication medium. And it's so true. And like, and we're so surrounded by people, but yet we don't communicate. We don't interact. Um, just kind of a side comment. This remember my dad would always talk about that. So did you, you have those same experiences growing up? I mean, did you guys play a lot of cards? You guys interact with your neighbors? Yeah. And there was a, a card game in Iowa called Pitch, yeah. P-I-T-C-H. And uh, most people have never even heard of it. And so it was either pitch or hearts. Yep. And you would go back and forth to the neighbor's house. You would make homemade ice cream. And then the kids, we all got to play as well. Not just the big people, but they let us play their, the adult game. And that that's very important. Yeah. So tell me about how you got involved. So your dad, how long did he fly? Did you end up, did you end up flying? Were you ever a pilot or did you... I was a private pilot, and I soloed when I was 16. When I got out of high school, when I was almost 18, I got my private, and I didn't want to go to college. Uh, I wanted to get in the airline business and make enough money so that I could get my reading, and I assumed I was going to be a commercial airline pilot. So I went to Chicago after high school, turned down some college scholarships, and uh Went to Chicago, and I started out loading bags at Midway Airport for an 
airline called Capital Airlines that was later merged into United. <laughs> and I started out as a baggage handler at about $220 a month. And then two or three years later, after Chris and I got married, she was a flight attendant. The Army was uh, looking for helicopter pilots. And I decided I was going to enlist and fly helicopters, and you could come out with a as a warrant officer, as I recall. But when I went to take the physical, the eye test, found out I'm colorblind. Hmm. Uh, not not completely, but partially. And, of course, when you got a private license in Iowa, nobody ever even gave you an eye test, I don't think. So that ended that, and I decided, you know, I'm not going to enlist in the infantry. Uh, I'm going to change direction and just begin to work on me. I would love to be in a strong leadership role in the airline business. And even though I didn't have any college, I had a mental philosophy that 50% of the people that were in the workforce didn't know what they wanted to do with their lives, uh, so I didn't have to compete with them. Another 25%, I figured I can do as well or better than they can. So I really only had to compete with 25% of the people in the workforce to get promotions and get into leadership positions, and that always sort of just gave me confidence. Well, by age 19, uh, I'd been a ticket agent after after working on the ramp and for a few months loading bags, and then I was a ticket agent for a year and a half, and then at age 19, they promoted me to be passenger service manager. There was one on every shift, three of us. So I was in charge of a shift of about 40 people behind the ticket counter and the bag room and so forth. With no leadership training, no, not really any experience and no education. So I learned from day one that uh, the only way you got things accomplished if you gave other people that worked with you the opportunity to accomplish things as well. Yeah. And sort of put yourself a little bit below the limelight. So that's the philosophy I always had. I had 13 jobs before I became the group vice president of marketing uh, for United like 20 years later. And in the meantime, I went to uh, graduate school at the University of Chicago at night and got a, an MBA in marketing, but I never went to undergraduate school. Wow. So I just always had leadership in my veins. I'm not sure I even understood what leadership meant at that point in time, but I just enjoyed it. Yeah. And, uh, I, like, I like that feeling of seeing things work out right. Well, what a great experience and what a great, um, you know, I think we all have our preconceived notions about leadership. I know I did. And I think as, as, as you, I kind of morphed into looking at, Hey, leadership was kind of about the larger than life, the, you know, the person with all the answers and how I was so wrong about that. And you do learn that it's about uh, almost like having, um, being passionate, like uh, you said it right there, how you were so driven and you were so passionate about getting into leadership role. So you had the tenacity, you had the passion, you had the drive. But coupled with that, you had this almost humility and what you learned about when you were being that ticketing agent and working for those people, having those people work for you, you realize that's not about you, it's about them. And so that's a great lesson to get early on in life. And it sets the stage, I think, for some of the leadership I think is lacking in so many areas. It's not about the larger than life charismatic figure. It's about um, influencing uh, through people, getting things done through people. When Capital was purchased by United Airlines in nineteen let's see, sixty one, I think, 
and United had all these psychologists in the Human Resources Department. And if uh, if your listeners have ever been with a company that got acquired by somebody bigger, they'll understand how you're immediately your number two. Mm-hmm. And and the folks at United let us folks from Capital know that we were number two. So I'm having my interview. I'm in my early 20s, I guess, with this psychologist whose name was Fred. And finally he gets around to the big question that we all get asked at some time. And he said, tell me, young man, what's your long-term goal? And I looked him right in the eye and I said, Fred, I want to be the president of the airline. Awesome. And he laughed, and he laughed at me. And I never forgot it. I just tucked that into my mental compartment. And every time I would get a promotion, I would just sort of say to myself, Fred, that's one more. Mm-hmm. I'm coming. I love that. Years go by. Years go by, and I would see him frequently at United's headquarters when I was a vice president. We speak in the hallway, hello, how are you? But that conversation never, ever came up until the day that it was announced that I was leaving United to go to Southwest as CEO. And my secretary, Linnea, came in and said, Howard, there's some man named Fred on the phone that says he has to talk to you. I knew he had retired a couple of years before that. What I did not know was he was dying of cancer. And when I answered the phone, he was almost in tears, and he congratulated me, and he said, I just had to call you and get this off my conscience after all these years. I'm so sorry that I ever laughed at you. And uh, I said, Fred, I think you did me a favor. And with that, he couldn't talk anymore, and uh, that was the end of it. Wow. You never know when some kind of an experience, be it positive or negative, will have a long-term influence. Yeah. He was a mentor. For me, without ever knowing it, I guess. I know, right? That's a great story, Howard. That's so awesome. Yeah, you're right. Sometimes you, you look at, at back at uh, people who've achieved their goals or dreams, great things. You know, whatever was great for them. There's a, there there are moments like that where people were driven because of somebody said. You know, it's almost like all. Well, almost like I'll show you, or you know, like you said, it was it. He was a mentor without even knowing he was a mentor. Man, I love that story. You know, one thing about leadership, I, you, I saw you say one thing, and, and uh, I heard this long ago, and, and you reminded me of it. And really, the essence of leadership, what it means to be a leader, is if you can be the person the dog your dog thinks you are. I think that's so great. I got four dogs, and and they just they think the world of you, right? <clears throat> but if you could yep. live up, if you could just live up to that person that that your dog thinks you are, then you've got leadership licked, right? I have a slide that I use that says exactly that, and uh, and we have a little dog as well. And, and when you come home and that dog does not know whether you did something bad that day, whether you did something good, whether you fired somebody, that little dog just starts wagging the tail or the big dog, and uh, it's just sort of an incentive every time you leave home in the morning to say, I gotta come home and be certain that my dog respects what I did today. Mm-hmm. Now you get it for four, what do you say, four dogs? Yeah, I got four. I got uh, a big German Shepherd that's too big. He's, uh, he's the biggest dog I've ever 
he's, he's such a big baby, but he's huge. And then a boxer that was a stray that was like, is, she came, she came to us as a stray a couple of years ago and, and she's the best dog ever. It's almost like the dogs that, that every dog that had to, it's been a stray has seemed so appreciative. I don't know. Maybe I'm crazy, but they just seem so appreciative when they find something good. And, um, she's yep. the best dog. And then I got two little, uh, dachshunds. So it's, it's kind of chaotic when the, the doorbell rings around here, as you can imagine. <laughs> so tell me about Southwest. You know, of course, I'm a, as a pilot and I've been a big fan of aviation. It's such a crazy business. And you and I were talking before the recording just, you know, kind of the trials and tribulations of what it means to be an airline pilot. I was flying with a guy who the other day and, um, he had 11,000 hours and he was an Air Force officer. And I just assumed he'd got all his time in the Air Force. And we got to talking and he was, and I was like, so what'd you fly in the Air Force? He said, a desk. And I said, well, how did you acquire 11,000 hours? And he said, well, you know, I went to pilot training and I washed out because I couldn't get through the aerobatics. And, but I was so determined and I was so, you know, I was going to be a pilot. I knew I could be a pilot. So he did it all in his off time in flying clubs. And they started working for a commuter. Then he worked for US Air. And then, um, an 11 happened and he got furloughed. And they did a demo pilot for Cessna. And it's just amazing that you really have to love aviation to be in, in this business. It's a crazy, crazy industry. So tell me a little bit about Southwest in the beginning and, and what it was like when you took over and then before you went to Braniff. Paint the picture for me of, of what kind of leadership challenges you were faced with. I was the second CEO. <clears throat> the airline was seven years old when I was recruited to come from United. It only flew in the state of Texas. And it had 12 airplanes and about a 1,000 employees. Uh, they were all 737s. And the first CEO was a man named Lamar Muse, M-U-S-E, and a very talented entrepreneur, a real hard-ass. You wouldn't, you wouldn't associate the culture of Southwest with Lamar. But he knew how to pick people to be around him. And he had a lot of good old boys from Texas. And they got the thing up off the ground. Uh, it, the idea of Southwest came from a man named Rollin King, mm -hmm. uh, who never was a uh, really an airline guy, but he drew the triangle on a napkin in a bar in San Antonio, Texas, with Herb Kelleher, who right. went on to be the chair. <laughs> and said, I think it's time to start a commuter airline in Texas, like BSA in California, intra-state. You didn't need the approval of the feds. So Lamar ran it for seven years, did a tremendous job, but you and I have seen leaders like Lamar. They are great as entrepreneurs. Uh, they're excellent as long as it's a command and control. But then when it gets bigger and you got to answer to a board of directors and delegate and so forth, it's very difficult for those kind of people to move on. So Lamar didn't fit that mold and it, board kind of took offense when he ordered some airplanes from Boeing and didn't get board of a director uh, approval. So uh, that sort of caused the door to open and Lamar left. So the board decided and Herb Kelleher as chairman decided that the next CEO, they wanted, they wanted two things. Somebody with some professional management and leadership experience in a bigger organization and somebody with a marketing background. And I happened to have both of those uh, attributes in my background. So that's how I got there. And when Herb and I sat down and interviewed, I said, Herb, I've got to ask you a question to be sure I understand, because if not, 
I don't want to leave the world's largest airline and come to the world's smallest airline. But I said, you've started out to play the game differently than other airlines. And I just want your commitment that you're willing to keep going down this path before I come here, because I think you guys have got the right idea. But what we need to figure out is what's the vision? There was nothing on paper. The company was seven years old, and they were they were starting to make money. But there was nothing that gave them. They had no flight plan. And when they got enough cash, they went to Seattle, bought another airplane. That's sort of the way that operated. So I said, Herb, some people play the game, others change the way the game is played. And I just want a commitment from you that we're going to continue to change the way the game is played. We shook hands. That was it. We came. So the first thing we did is I took took the senior management group. We only had eight in vice, vice presidents, plus Herb and myself. We went off-site, rented a conference room, and the University of Texas at Dallas and Richardson. And for 25 bucks, I facilitated it. I just said, we're not leaving this room until we can write up on the wall in 100 words or less. What are we going to be when we grow up? And it took us a day and a half, but we came out with a little 52-word vision, mission statement that simply said what Southwest was and what it was not. We were not going to have more than one kind of airplane. We were not going to have first class. We were not going to have meals. We were not going to do this, yada, yada. We were going to increase the size of the market, get people out of the living room, get them out of the automobile, and not steal business from the competitors. Let's grow the market, make the pie bigger. And this is a good lesson for a lot of entrepreneurs when you start a new business. Where is the market coming from? So one, we had the vision done. Two, We've had, we figured out what business we were really in, and a lot of companies don't do this. We figured out we weren't an airline. We were in mass transportation. Yeah. Uh, we were, of sorts, a cattle car. And now how do you create a value proposition that people will put up with no first class, no seating assignments, etc.? And that's where the people and the culture came in. So vision, what business are you in, and then a culture to support it and create the value proposition. And we headed down that path, and just last year, Jim Collins wrote another book, and this one's called Great by Choice. Right, great book. Uh, and uh, I don't even know Jim Collins, never met him, but he devoted almost an entire chapter to the time at Southwest when we wrote the vision and so forth. And his point was that companies that stick to their, stick to their vision, he says that 30 years later, Southwest is still utilizing 80% of the vision that we wrote then. They just throw out the stuff that doesn't work and just add little nuances to what does work. But those companies that stick to that straight and narrow, who have integrity, who have honesty, who develop leaders that will stay for the long term, he calls them SMAC, S-M-A-C, Systematic, Methodical, and Consistent. And uh, a lot of companies think we got to change every time there's an economic downturn. Right. Jim Collins said, for the long term, you don't do that. You stick with what's works for you. Yeah, I mean, that, it, you take it for granted now, but you're thinking about how um, simple it sounds, but you, you said a, a point there that, <clears throat> excuse me, that is so, uh, I think, relevant to Southwest success is that you stopped looking at it as an airline. And you say, and, and you look at it as mass transportation. You look at it now and you think, well, yeah, that makes sense. But back then, Nobody was looking at it that way. And um, that that is the key in, in the heart to Southwest success. You stopped looking at it as an airline. 
It sounds so simple now. We, Go ahead. And we treated everybody that worked there as family. Yeah. And they still do. We treated them with dignity. Uh, they had put in profit sharing before I got there for everybody, not just for the officers. Right. And that's a powerful motivator when people see that management and leadership, they're willing to share it with everybody. And now Southwest has made money 40 years in a row, which and is you know, incredible. Yeah, I've remarkable. got a couple of, well, I got a, quite a few friends that work there and, and they love it working there. Yeah. So and the, the mantra over the door still is, Higher attitudes develop the skills. Yeah. Higher attitudes develop the skills. So what led? So then, you're there for a few years, and you get the call for Braniff. So you're are you feeling pretty good? Are you feeling like yeah, you know, I, I, can, I can turn these airlines around. So what prompted you to tackle that challenge? Uh, we had tripled in size, as you mentioned in the introduction, and tripled in profitability, and on interstate after deregulation, we had three public offerings. We were the first order of the 737-300. I mean, it was a, it was a great three years. And suddenly here's Braniff across town at DFW in big financial trouble. Uh, it was about four times the size of Southwest at that point in time. And the board came after me to recruit me to come thinking that the only way the company could probably be saved was somebody who understood low-cost transportation might be come in and be able to come in and take all the costs out, simplify it, and sort of make it a long-haul Southwest Airlines. And I think they were, they were correct. Where, where they were incorrect was after they had fired uh, the CEO the year before, the company had just oozed money out more rapidly than the board even understood. And from the due diligence that we were shown, by the time we accepted and got there a few weeks later, there were about another 170, 150, 175 million had gone out the door wow. for payables, fuel, fuels, etc. So when we got there, and I, and I, fortunately I took my CFO with me, Phil Guffrey, and we went as a team. And so his, He's so good at finance, and that's my weakness. I understood leadership, customer service, management, airline operations, but finance was my weakness. So I convinced him to go with me as a team, and it was only after we got there. On a Sunday afternoon, just the two of us started going through the numbers in real detail. Phil said, you know, we only got about 10 days of cash. Wow. And here's a here's a billion-dollar company with 10,000 employees in about nine countries we got 10 days of cash, and I'll tell you, that'll bring a lump to your throat after you've just resigned as the CEO oh, of the world's most popular life. So I wanted to pick up the phone and call Kelleher and say, hey, Irv, I was just kidding. I didn't mean to resign, <laughs> but right. it was a bad decision on my part. And I tell people often when I'm speaking, you know, I'm impetuous. I'm impatient. But I was too impetuous and too impatient when I made that decision. Now I'm there. Uh, Bill and I have committed to do it. I said, you know what? We've never really been taught crisis management, and we're going to have to learn it ourselves, and we're going to have to do it quick. And we're not going to do committees. We're not going to bring in consultants. And you got 10 days of cash. Bill, you and I are going to have to figure this thing out real quick. And that's what we did. And we reorganized the company. Uh, structurally, I think they had nine layers of management. Wow. And in the first... 
in the first two weeks, we took out two entire layers of management, and along with that came about 22 vice presidents. Yeah. So six or seven, six or seven hundred people. We just right now. A lesson learned in that is is that sometimes you never get all the facts, and you just have to go with the best decision you can. Because when you have ten days of cash, you can't mess around very long. Yeah, you got to go into decision making mode right away. I mean, you can't be like you said, no consultants. I mean, it's almost like what I call the 70% solution, get 70% of the information to make a decision and go. I mean, you just got to keep on. God, that's amazing. So we kept it alive for seven months and uh, simplified the structure, took out first class. <clears throat> Excuse me. Because uh, <laughs> Phil, I don't know how he did it, how he kept the payrolls going and all. Like one day I said, Phil, where are you finding this cash? <laughs> he laughed. He laughingly said, I guess I'm doing it with mirrors. <laughs> and, uh, I just talked to Phil last night. Ironically, as we speak today, May 13th, that's the day that we put Braniff into Chapter 11. And I know you didn't know that before we we spoke this. So 31 years ago today, uh, uh, we had the company on the ground. And then how long did it take till you flew again? Was it a couple years or what? Uh, We got it reorganized completely approved in 14 months. We sold it to the Pritzker family in Chicago. Uh, I, we stayed another two months, then I could see that we were not going to be a fit. Uh, you know, you have generals for war and you have generals for peace. And we were the generals for the war and, uh, and we were burned out. I can imagine. So, uh, so we, we faded into the sunset. And uh, ironically, uh, last night, and I was talking to Phil Guthrie, my CFO, and we, we've stood in other businesses together since then. And so usually on May the 12th, we have a phone visit and we talk about, God, did you remember how bad it was that night when we had to shut it down? And last night I said to him, uh, you know, Phil, who we haven't heard from in a long while is our bankruptcy judge, John Flowers. And like, did we used to exchange Christmas cards and we would have never gotten the company reorganized had we not had a uh, good bankruptcy judge in Fort Worth, Texas. And Phil says, well, he lives here in Dallas. So I got on the Internet just last night, and uh, I found John Flowers in Dallas, and I called him up. And I could tell as soon as he answered the phone, I remembered his voice. I told him who it was, and he said, why are you calling me tonight? (laughs) I said, Judge, 31 years ago tonight, I sat in your living room at midnight and you signed the petition to put us into Chapter 11. And he laughed. He'd, he'd forgotten the date. But, you know, how often how often can you go through such a horrible business situation and 31 years later you still have a relationship with your CFO, you still have a relationship with the judge? And there's another lesson. Relationships, yeah. relationships. Wow, that's a great, oh, that's an awesome story. What was the biggest leadership lesson or the biggest challenge, I guess, in that time? It must have been pretty dark and scary at some times. Uh, yeah, it was, it was dark and scary every day. And, uh, I guess the other thing I learned is that turbulence was inevitable, but misery was optional. Oh, I and love that, yeah. You, every day was a bad day. And when you've got 18,000 creditors, uh, 10,000 employees out of work, you owe a 
500 million in secured debt, 500 million in unsecured debt, uh, and you've got a team of about 30 people that's trying to reorganize all this thing, uh, reorganize this thing. It's just, it's just, it's terrifying is what it is. Yeah. And you learn, you learn every day on your own. There were no textbooks at that time. Braniff was really the first big company in the United States, uh, to go belly up and, that was at the same time that Diet Coca was getting a bailout for Chrysler. And I had refused to go to Braniff if they wanted a bailout, because I don't believe in bailouts. I don't think the taxpayers should have to pay for management's mistakes. Right. Braniff overextended and so so we didn't ask for a bailout. So that that whole thing keeping it alive for seven months and then take it into eleven was just very intense. Seven days a week, twelve to fourteen hours a day. And pretty soon you your mind just begins to dwindle down. You can't can't think anymore. You're so tired. Wow. Well, as we wrap up here, what is some what what is the, your best piece of leadership advice for, say, some of those mid level managers, those people that are struggling in their leadership roles or they're thinking about being a leader? What would you tell some of those young up and coming leaders out there? I would I would start with a patient. If you don't have a passion for the business that you're in, then go somewhere else. If you don't have a passion for the company that you're with, go somewhere else. I never had to go to work a day in my life. Every day, I loved getting up to go. By the end of Braniff, uh, I was so tired that I probably didn't want to get up to go. But passion, passion is number one. Two, you've got to enjoy having responsibility and being accountable for decisions. Yeah. And if if that bothers you, uh, then you're not in the right position for leadership. And maybe you have to think about a, another career. You've got to you've got to enjoy it. And I always found that if those leaders that didn't respect their people, uh, they might succeed, but it's very difficult. Now I think history will show down the road that that uh, Apple Computer. The leadership at Apple was more unique than we was. And I don't think Steve Jobs was that much of a people guy. Yeah. But he had the passion and the inspiration that people wanted to be a part of the organization, and they were absolutely, outstandingly successful. So it's not always, as you said earlier, the charismatic, charismatic, bigger-than-life person is the greatest leader of the one you look up to. Every leader is, is different, but there's some basic things in integrity, honesty, responsibility, accountability that every successful leader that I've seen has. Yeah. Great points. Howard, thanks for coming on the show today. Where can they find you? What's, uh, what's a good place to find you on the web? Uh, you can just go to howardputnam.com, U-T-N-A-M, and uh, there's another one called, uh, we have a website for professional speakers who have aviation in their backgrounds, and it's called speakingeagles.com. And you can see some great leaders and speakers and aviators uh, that are a part of that group as well. All right, I'll have links to all these on the post. Again, Howard, it was such a uh, thrill having you on the show. I could talk to you for hours about this, but uh, I try to keep these about 35 minutes, so maybe we'll have you come back at a later date. Okay. Richard, I appreciate what you're doing, and... uh, Thanks for taking the time to 
have a little visit. Yep. Thank you, Howard. We'll talk to you soon. Richard invites you to become a part of the Dose of Leadership community. Visit doseofleadership.com and sign up to receive his free Common Sense Leadership ebook, a guide that highlights how all of us can learn to become calm, confident, consistent, and courageous in all aspects of our lives. Richard is also available as a speaker for your next event. Richard specializes in practical leadership and change management. He has a philosophy of inspiring everyone to think and act like a leader, which is based on timeless natural principles and common sense. You can get more info by visiting doseofleadership.com.